0: So you have your Bibles there, hope you have your journals as well. We start a brand new series today, so you can pick those up at Connect Central. Hopefully you have that, there's a digital copy as well. Um, You just want to make sure we're keeping our nose in the book and um, letting the Holy Spirit illuminate our minds and hearts to what His Word would say to us. One of the things that I really enjoy hearing are stories of church planters and their journey to planting a church. I love rehearsing what God did here, oh, 19 or so years ago. In fact, with us this morning, I see Jill back there. She was our very first elementary director. And she married Mike, and they moved away. and But I saw her, and I thought, yeah, that's, those are fun memories of how God just worked in a few of us at first, and then that grew. And just a so fun to think about what God did. Um. I think about our church plants, whether it's international or uh, just the seven here, kind of locally, even a granddaughter church now in Waterloo out of City Point Church. And just the God's continuous rippling of his work, multiplying disciples. I was with a gentleman, oh, maybe two, three weeks ago, having lunch. He's new to Ankeny, maybe three or four or so years, in a different job here. He used to be a church planter in Canada in a pretty remote area. Went there with just a handful of people and just began to see God save a lot of people and uh, just told me a tremendous story. I just kind of had a jaw-dropping 60 minutes having lunch with him. I'm like, wow, isn't God good to um, use us as a means to see disciples made, they're formed, they collect, they gather, and they establish you know, spiritual Uh, leaders among them, deacons and elders, and then they begin to multiply themselves. Like That's just a fun story to hear about over and over. One of my favorites is through an evangelist slash missionary named A.P. A.P. was in Asia. He experienced a number of closed doors there, a little frustrated, concluded that God would have him go to Southeast Europe, went to Southeast Europe, small town of about 10,000. Within this town, there's a river and he was just conversing with some folks at the river and evangelizing. Um, A lady got saved. Some other folks came to Christ. The lady said to him in the course of this conversation, if you need a place to meet with these new believers, you can use my home. So AP said, sure. So they began to gather in this lady's home. A church was formed. Um, Eventually, elders and deacons The church functioned and grew, and what was really uh, neat to me was reading about how this church that AP planted with the help of God, of course, and by His grace and His Spirit's power, but this church became a key, in fact, the first and often only supporting church as AP then moved on to spread the gospel in other areas. Just a fascinating uh, relationship and partnership. Just always intrigued by those kinds of stories. Now, maybe you're wondering, well, where was this town in Southeast Europe? And who in the world is AP? I'm really glad you asked. It was Philippi. In the first century, and AP is the Apostle Paul. The lady's name? Lydia. And the church is the church at Philippi. And they received a letter from Paul named Philippians. Now I hope in this moment. You're thinking, I thought that was a present tense story. The truth is, what you see happening today is what God was doing even in the first century. Gathering his children who form into communities, see God's leaders raise up, they obey God's command, follow his ordinances, and pursue his mission. That's called a church. And it was going on in the first century and it's still going on today. Churches being planted People partnering together to see God's mission move forward. And churches like that then supporting other folks who go out and plant other churches. Does that make sense? So so this is just a beautiful thing we see that we are part of. We're in a long line of what God's been doing for centuries. And this is really what Philippians is. Philippians is a thank you letter from a church planter, AP. Can I use that for Paul? Written to a church he planted about 10 years previously thanking them for being one of his key and at times only supporting churches. Now you can read about how AP planted the church in Philippi in Acts 16. You'll follow the thread of events I laid out for you, though you thought it was present tense, how he experienced closed doors, got the Macedonian call, went to Southeast Europe, planted there, met Lydia by the river. She became a follower of Christ because the Lord opened her heart she then opened her home. They met. And we find out in Philippians that actually this church later was, was, so, um, was functioning so well that they had elders and deacons, the very thing Paul did on his second time around. So it's good, it's good to see it. So delightful to see God's work in places like this. And so after doing that in Acts 16, we come to Philippians and we realize this is Paul's thank you letter back to them. And it is filled with messages and themes that center around the idea of partnership, working together, companionship, comradeship, collegiate type of relationships. These kinds of things that are are necessary as the gospel continues to go forward. And we'll find that in this partnership, there is great joy. That's another big theme in Philippians. And because of this partnership... The gospel sees progress. That's probably what brings about the joy. So a lot of these things are connected. In fact, I'll show you in a few minutes how the word partner is mentioned about seven times. The word joy is mentioned five times. And the word rejoice is mentioned seven times. And if you kind of connect them all together, you'll see there is a definite um, uh, relationship between those. As the gospel makes progress because of partnerships, God's people experience joy. So we're going to look at this for the next 24 weeks, two and possibly through the fall, this whole thank you letter about the partnership Paul had with the church he planted 10 years earlier. Allow me a few minutes to just kind of walk you through some larger observations about partnership from the book of Philippians. Now, you will see these observations, principles, conclusions Um, expanded over the next 24 weeks in different ways, through different texts, as we kind of dissect this paragraph by paragraph, you're going to see, oh, we mentioned that in the first week. We talked about that in the overview, of course. But I want to give you an overview about biblical partnership, as that is one of the main themes in the book. And Because of partnership, the gospel can then spread, and that's what brings us joy. So six observations about biblical partnerships. Number one, partnership is, and I would even say, firstly, relational. You see this right away in the book, don't you? When he says in verses three to five, how he has them in his heart. He remembers them in prayer. In verse seven, of course, you see this as well, how he uh, describes his love for them. Uh, You go to chapter four, there you see Paul talking about how he loves them as brothers and sisters. He wants them to stand firm. And so, throughout the book, there's this sense that there's something deep uh, between Paul and this church, and it's this relationship that began when he planted this church. And so, there is a relational foundation to all partnerships, especially, necessarily, biblical partnerships. Now, with that in mind, beware that does not mean that there's not spiritual, financial, or logistical responsibilities within a partnership, or we could say within a relationship. But what drives the responsibilities is the relationship, all right? In fact, if you were to maybe put a finger in my chest and say, Todd, give me two summary words for a partnership Biblically, I would say relationship and responsibility would be two good summary words that Philippians brings out for us. That's kind of how you describe a partnership. Let me give you a little more textual evidence for this. In the book of Philippians, seven times we see the word partner or share or um, something along the lines. And whenever we see a word like that in Philippians, it comes from one of two words in the book. Five times it's the word koinonia, which simply means fellowship. So at times it's translated partner, as in chapter one. I think later in the three or four, it's translated share. But at the root of all of this is this word fellowship. The other word is the word for colleague. And so that's mentioned twice. But if you think about a colleague, you think about someone who's partnering with you in responsibility In the idea of fellowship, koinonia is someone's partner with you in relationship. So I think every time we see this idea of partnership, the words used are words that point at relationship and responsibility. That really is what a partnership is. And that's a biblical understanding of partnerships as well. This is one of the reasons that we call our missionaries partners, it's not the only reason, okay? There are some other reasons, such as security factors now going on in different elements within that whole missiological world. But I would say one of the reasons is because the idea of a partner really describes what happens relationally and responsibly between our church and those who are partners or missionaries or uh, co-workers, or colleagues or who are in fellowship with us in the spread of the gospel. So just understand, if you're new here, or perhaps you're just joined, when you hear the word partners, more than likely we're speaking of one of our missionaries in a cross-culture or foreign context. Now, we have 11 global partners uh, spread across the world. Out of those 11, six are actually from this church. They sat in the very chairs you're sitting in right now. Uh, we have four more in the pipeline who are sitting among you we were just praying and seeing what the next green light is. And so that's kind of some of the information about global partners. We have many local partners. Our local partners would be in the double digits. They range from different camps, um, pregnancy centers, to prison ministries, um, downtown inner city ministries, lots of different things. We typically give annually to a select number of local partners um, based on um, budget uh, surplus and then the Lord's leading and, and who we're working with, we'll select some local partners and give to them annually. Our global partners, we give to monthly. It's one of the ways that we continue this relationship. We have chosen as a philosophical posture to have fewer partners and higher investment, both financially and relationally. Not that the other way is wrong. Some folks choose a lot of partners and less financial relationships. We chose the opposite, and it's proven beneficial for our local body here as there's a closeness to uh, between our church and its partners. One of the ways we do this is not only through uh, our sending teams, which all of our partners, I think for the most part, have a sending team. That's the liaison between the larger body and the partner. It's impossible for one partner to communicate to 900 of you. And so for one partner to communicate to a small group, and then they can disseminate the information to those who like to know or need to know. Sending teams have been a very integral part. It's a very uh, beautiful aspect. That's one way our relationships stay strong. But also we have this environment called first person. Uh, The next one's April 30th, just a couple of weeks. It's when we have an in-the-room conversation only between one of our partners or more of our partners or potential partners in the pipeline and our church. And so it's always three to four on a Sunday afternoon. It's usually the, uh, I think it's the last Sunday it's, it's the fifth Sunday of every quarter. That's what it is. Whenever there's a fifth Sunday, we have a first person. And so we got one April 30th. Our partner from France is going to be here in person that day. You're going to hear from our South African team who went there last January and some other things happening that day. So I just want to encourage you, come as a small group. Come on your own. It's one of the ways you can kind of uh, increase the relational aspect of our partnership with our missionaries. Sometimes we have local ones in, other times global ones. Just be aware of that. It's, it's all about the relationships that we have. And so in our responsibility to our partners, I have discovered that that always goes easier and more willingly and more joyfully when there is a relationship as well. Because partnership is firstly relational. Notice number two, partnership is costly. In other words, it has consequences. It requires something of us. Now, not all of these consequences, not all of these costs are life-threatening. Often when we say that, we think, oh my, I have to give my life. I'm going to be shot. I'm going to be martyred. Maybe not, right? There are just other costs or consequences associated with partnerships. It comes with the territory of a deeply committed relationship. Now, I mentioned to you we have 11 global partners, double-digit local partners. Um, we give to our global partners on a regular monthly basis. Uh, we give well over uh, 10% of our budgeted dollars in that fashion. I think when you calculate end of your surplus and what's given in that point, Often it's 20 or so percent of our just income goes to partnership efforts in some way, whether global or local, or sending our folks on trips, uh, visiting our missionaries. So just be aware, there is a cost to that. Uh, It's not a cost that we begrudge. It's a cost we gladly embrace. But nonetheless, it is a cost. As you read through Philippians, you'll find that this is true. Paul was imprisoned but he considered that a joy because it was one of the ways that God was spreading the gospel to the imperial guard. They would not have heard about it had Paul not been in prison, is what he's saying. You find this true with the Epaphroditus, who came from the church at Philippi and brought their support gift to Paul. But somehow in the journey, he either contracted an illness or got sick when he arrived at Paul And he became so ill that he almost died. Paul said about Epaphroditus, he risked his life for the sake of the gospel. So when you read these passages, you begin to see that partnership is costly. There is a price to pay. One of the things that we do with our partners, I'm giving you some kind of uh, practical windows to, to, to see partnerships at First Family. hope this is helpful to you. One of the things that we've agreed to do since early on was to visit our partners every three years. Now, there have been some exceptions, uh, most notably and recently, the pandemic. But usually, we visit our partners about every three years for encouragement, support, relationship. And did you know that cost? Uh, We have uh, costs associated. You don't have to raise funds. We obviously contribute. And so there's a cost to that factor. Um, This past January, some ladies went to visit some Potential partners in South Africa. They'll be reporting on April 30th. Um, next June, we've got a family visiting some of our partners in East Africa. It's such a very um, difficult region that we really can't send more than a few people. So often, to those contexts, we'll just send one family. It's not near as obvious or noticeable as maybe just a bunch of other adults popping down in a country that's supposed to be very secure and uh, Guarded. So there's a lot going on there, but we are sending someone in June, and that way, uh, end of this week, Dustin and Abigail are taking about 10 or so, uh, some from here and some from Walnut Creek, up to Engage Global in Minneapolis. Engage Global is a terrific two- to three-day experience in which you get a chance to see what it's like in a cross-cultural missions environment, and yet you don't, have, you don't have to go cross-culture across the ocean, and you'll, they'll come back blown away, trust me. It's a fantastic two to three days. But Dustin and Abigail are taking those folks up this weekend. Tomorrow, I and another FFC are leave for Turkey and Moldova and one other country that I won't mention here. And we're going to be going to see some team leaders and country leaders from one of the agencies that we support. So I'll be going about 10 days uh, in that part of the world, just checking on them, trying to continue to build relationships. Uh, this is just all part of the cost not only finances, but our time, our relationships, our focus, our attention. It's all part of partnerships. And I encourage you, embrace that. Um, it's, it's relational and it's costly. Number three, it's also selfless. Partnerships are selfless. Perhaps we should say this, they require Selflessness. <laughs> And so we see this throughout Philippians. Uh, You see the example of Timothy and Epaphroditus. Paul said he has no one like Timothy who will care for their well-being like he would. He talks about Epaphroditus, Epaphroditus risking his life. I love the way in chapter one even, Paul says he would, and this is hard to even verbalize. Paul says, I would rather go be with Christ, but for your sakes, I'll stay put here. I mean, That's a selflessness, wouldn't you admit? And he says, I'll do this for your joy. And of course, these examples of selflessness, which really kind of paint a number of portraits throughout Philippians. You can spot three or four portraits of selflessness throughout the book, which shows us that's the avenue to joy. But they're all hinged to the the main one, which is Philippians 2, Jesus Christ. Humbled himself. Did not exploit being God but was willing to voluntarily not use that as a way to get his own way. And he became a man. And he humbled himself and served, and he served all the way to the point of death on a cross. But God's exalted him. So do you see the picture of selflessness there? And then the ones around it. This is really the, the fuel, the, the, the engine of partnership. As I was thinking about Just the selfless examples here in Philippians. Uh, I was reminded of a visit Julie and I made about a month and a half ago up to Guttenberg, Iowa. It's a small river town, um, northeast, maybe 2,400 people there. And as most of you know, we are exploring and looking at different rural options for either campuses or church plants places where there's not a Casey's, excuse me, there's not a Walmart, but there's a Casey's. By the way, uh, Guttenberg's in Clayton County. And from what I've been told in the research, there's not a single stoplight in Clayton County. I think that's the definition of rural. Yes. Just put that in Webster's, right? So we're up there and, and there's a, a lady named Rita. and She's been watching and benefiting and just conversing and um, she gives faithfully. And so uh, there's other folks who have kind of been interested now, and there's something happening and stirring there in Guttenberg. And so Julie and I just drove up there on a Sunday night and stayed and uh, saw her on Monday, and you'll hear her story more in the future. But Rita said this to me, speaking of selflessness. She says, Todd, whatever I can do to help reach more folks in this small town that has really no strong gospel witness, uh, like, I'm in. Rita's a widow. She's retired. She's pretty spry, by the way. She's a go-getter. And she said, "You want to use my home? No problem." She goes, "My living room will seat about 25. We can pack them in. And if we get more than 25, we'll find a new place. But whatever you need, like uh, my stuff, our home, like just help yourself." It's very humbling to hear that. To know someone's wanting to see the gospel spread, wanting to. Have a partnership in a way so more folks come to faith in Christ and the gospel goes forth. Isn't that great to hear? Her name is Rita Klink. I hope you meet her someday soon. We're not sure what we're gonna do exactly yet. We're in talks. Elders are praying. want you to pray with us. But at some point, we'll let you know. And if the Lord does lead that way, the Holy Spirit opens the door and we open a rural campus up there in Guttenberg. Man, I can't wait to have you meet Rita. She's one of the most selfless persons you'll ever meet. Partnership is selfless. Number four, Partnerships are difficult. Partnerships are difficult. I think as you think about the costliness of one and the selflessness required, it's not hard to see that this is the next obvious conclusion, that they are difficult. And You see this not only in chapter 3 when Paul talks about their enemies to the cross. Uh, you also see this when he... In chapter four, verses two and three, Paul apparently asks the elders, maybe the deacons too, but he's asking someone in that church, is probably the leaders of that church, to really work with these two ladies, Yodia and Sintik, to agree in the Lord. In other words, there must have been some type of tension, and he's not dissing these ladies. He knows, man, they were partners in the gospel they contended for the gospel he respects them highly but he's saying something's crept in there's a little friction there's a hurdle and it could be an obstacle and wouldn't it be bad if a human hurdle suddenly stopped or hindered the spread of the gospel Now, when i read that i take a i let out a deep breath like i'm not the first one to battle this (laughs) maybe you do too In churches, sometimes our preferences, our differences get in the way of the mission. I've had that experience. I've been guilty at times of being a hindrance, not a help. Perhaps you have as well. Paul here is saying, yes, partnerships are difficult, so lean in heavily, work together to not let preferences and distractions become obstacles that the church can't get over. Don't let the mission be put on hold because of personal things. It just says to me, the partnerships are difficult. We've got to work together on what matters most. And can I just take a moment and pause here and say this to you? I love the way you all do this. We're not perfect at it, but I want to say to you, in all humility, I feel like you chase unity really well. I know that in a church our size, There's got to be a million different preferences on a million different things. And yet, somehow, God's Spirit has empowered you to keep your little K kingdoms over here, enjoy them, participate in them, value them. But when you get together with God's people and the big kingdom is that we make disciples who make disciples. You have a unique way. I think it's the Holy Spirit empowering you to keep those in the right perspective so that God's mission is the priority. And I just want to thank you for pursuing unity, for being mature enough to know the difference between preferences and priorities between what I might like and what God actually commands. I just want to say thank you. It's a joy to be one of your pastors. It's fun to walk through things together and to hear different sides and to come out together for what is best for the mission of God. So thank you. I appreciate that. Why is that the case? Because we know partnerships, they're difficult. But God's spirit is powerful. Amen? He can bind us together in love for each other and in unity around the gospel to see it progress. Notice fifthly, partnership is profitable. I think this is of the six, this is the one that most intrigues me. It's because of a simple pronoun in verse 17. Because I would not have used this pronoun, neither would you. When Paul's thanking them for their gift, he's explaining he's not greedy, he's not trying to get them to give because he needs something. He says, I can be content in whatever state I'm in. He says, I just want you to give, I seek your gift. Now, what's the use of this pronoun? Uh, because there is profit increasing to, say the word with me, your account. That's not how fundraisers think. Fundraisers think like this. Man, I, I really desire your gift. I want you to keep uh, you know, giving because I desire profit to our account or even to my account. I, they're thinking about what it's going to do to them, uh, to their situation in the immediate. Paul said, listen. I want you to keep giving. I thank you for your support, but here's why I'm encouraging you to keep giving, because there's a profit to your account. Now, how does that work? How does someone who gives something away find a profit in their account? It seems like there should be a debit. Wouldn't you agree? Isn't math that way? If I give it away, I don't get a profit. I have less and you have more. But Paul's saying, keep giving because I want to see a profit in your account. Here's what Paul's saying, that when we give, to our partners, they see the immediate earthly benefit, but the giver sees the eternal dividend. It's very akin to Matthew chapter six, when Jesus said, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And with the greatest of clarity, hear this, first hand church, When you give of your resources, you are in the the moment helping our partners. When you give to and through your church, you are making a difference horizontally in the moment, scripturally, in a needed way with our partners. And in eternity, you'll see dividends from that spiritual investment. And you're accomplishing more for your life later when you do that than even when you give to your own IRA or 401K or 403B and you see immediate dividends in your own retirement accounts or your own investments. Nothing wrong with that. Proverbs talks about saving and being wise. I support that. But you realize that's just earthly. When you give to partners, when you're generous, And you support, you're helping them, but the actual dividend is tallied for you in heaven for later. Hallelujah. I like God's math, don't you? And then it causes my heart to want to be more generous. One of the talks that Julie and I have every year is how can we give more? And I'm not trying to put a knee in your back. I'm not trying to put a finger in your chest. I just want you to know this verse matters. I believe what God says, don't you? I mean, I want to help in the immediate and not in a selfish way, but to realize that as we do, man, we're seeing dividends eternally. This is great motivation to continue to be generous with your resources and finances in partnerships that are biblical for the spread of the gospel. Lastly, notice this. Partnership is triciprocal. And my guess is most of you have not heard that word before. I think I made it up a few years ago I've used it before. It may actually be a word now. I don't know. But it's a heightened version of reciprocal. And I want to end with this because I think this is really how the book ends. You notice how Philippians 4, the last two or three verses, he talks about how they're to greet all the saints. There are some saints even within the Roman government, alluded to by the name Caesar, he says, to pass on my greetings, to love each other. But in the midst of all this talk about them and him, he's always mentioning Christ. And I'm more and more convinced that biblical partnerships are not between two people. They're between three. It's us, them, and Jesus. It's triciprocal, not Just reciprocal. You with me? And often we think about love in these terms. We reciprocate love. You love me, and then I love you. Nothing wrong with that. But it is merely horizontal. It is, follow me here, don't don't go to neutral. It is merely natural. That's pretty human. Reciprocal love is that. Triciprocal love is what first Thessalonians four describes when Paul said, I want you to keep loving each other. And by the way, you are taught by God to love one another. That's a triciprocal relationship that we love, not merely because it's human or natural, but we are actually taught by God to love one another. That's, that's three people in the equation. That's when a partnership works. Now. What did Paul mean when he said you're taught by God to love one another? It's a good question. It could have been that he's referring to Christ's commands to love each other as well as Christ's example. And so he's saying when you look at Christ, you'll see love. Live that way. Legitimate. It may mean he's referring to what he told the Romans when he said that the Holy Spirit sheds abroad in your heart the love of God, meaning you only can love Biblically, because you have the Holy Spirit in you. I'd say he means both of those. Look at Christ's example and command and know that as a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. And now, don't just love naturally or horizontally only or humanly. Man, love supernaturally. Love biblically. Love triciprocally. And that's what a partnership is. It is a triciprocal relationships. Beautiful comfort and promise. Because it shows me something. More than we need each other, we need God. Now, I could move to the level of a marriage and illustrate this perfectly because more than your wife needs a good husband, your wife needs a Godly husband. More than your husband needs a good wife, your husband needs a godly wife. It can move to parents and children. More than your child needs a good parent, your child needs a... Yeah. More than your... Um, more than you need a good child, you need a... So you could work this however you want. But in the context of Philippians, I think what Paul is saying in these final verses, and he's showing us this triceprical nature of relationships, is this, that God is the engine behind any true biblical partnership. That, That we can't fuel this just on human cleverness, innovation, ingenuity. It takes God. Hallelujah for that reality. I don't have the endurance, the capacity, the wisdom, the brains, the intelligence, the talent to engineer partnerships so that the gospel spreads to the ends of the earth. I don't have that. My guess is you don't either. But the Holy Spirit will empower that in God's people. That's why we need more than them and they need more than us. We together need God. Now, I'm going to close in a minute, but I want to bring to you just one more implication from this observation that's pretty heavy. So I want you to fasten your seatbelts for a moment. Let me just kind of kick this into turbo. If right now you're hearing this and you've heard the book of Philippians, you've seen the six observations, you're like, hmm, and you're like, I have no interest in that. In fact, Todd, that talk of generosity and sacrifice, that talk of investment, of selflessness, like that almost repels me. It almost smells repugnant. Like, I'm not into that. I, I have no, this is not attractive. I think you lost one person for sure today, Todd. I'll probably not come back. If that's your impression right now, you're thinking, man, he's putting a, uh, you know, he's coming at us hard this morning. Here's what may be the problem. And just again, I'm gonna say this very humbly, but I wanna say it honestly to you. That's a heart issue, that's not a wallet issue or a schedule issue. That's not an energy issue. That is a heart issue. And there's only one person who can change a person's heart. Say it with me. God, Jesus, Christ, the Holy Spirit. Our Trinitarian God is the only one who can take a selfish, non-giving, non-interested, calloused heart and say, Yes, I'll help. Yes, I'll give. There's no pastor with the ability to move that. There's no small group. That's not happening horizontally. This is why partnerships need God. This is why they must be triciprocal. Because you and I don't have the power to change anybody's heart, to cause them to want to invest to be selfless, to endure difficulty, to pay the price, to endure the cost. All of us at some point would say, I'm done with that, I'm depleted, I'm out. But when God is in the picture and he's the binding glue of the partnership, of the relationship, guess what? We endure, we give, we sacrifice. We see our lives poured out like a drink offering. And to the watching world, it seems like that's insane. That's crazy. Why would you do that? Why would you go there? Why would you give that? And what we should say is this it's all God. We should even say this well, I probably wouldn't if it wasn't for God. (laughs) But because God is the driver of the partnership, because God is the driver of the relationship, because it's triciprocal then yes, we partner biblically so that God's news can spread to the ends of the earth. So with that in mind, as you're processing these six overarching conclusions from this entire book, can I just offer you a simple take-home summary of the book? I usually give you a simple take-home truth from a passage or a verse or two. I'm gonna shoot an arrow towards the whole book this morning. Can we do that? And if I were to be pressed to find one sentence that would summarize Philippians pretty well, that kind of lay some pavement down for the next 24 weeks of our study in this book, I'd say this. Gospel partnership is a God-given means of gospel progress and joy. We can't get the job done alone. We have to have partners. And when that is established and working well, according to the Bible's parameters, it fills us with joy because God's news is spreading. People are coming to faith in Christ. Disciples are being made. They're being formed into communities called churches. They're seeing elders and deacons established, and then they reproduce themselves and on and on until the whole world knows until someone from every nation, language, tribe, and tongue hears the name of Christ. That's what we're after. That takes partnerships. And as that occurs, guess what? We experience great joy. Could it be that one of the reasons that your life seems low on joy is because it's weak in partnerships? Could it be that your life is way too myopic? You haven't seen outside of your own world for years. You can't imagine giving someone even $25 to help with their missionary effort, but you'll buy a $600 TV in a heartbeat. I mean, maybe that's your world right Like, man, that seems upside down. I, it probably is, actually. <laughs> maybe the next 24 weeks will help us all have a more biblical posture about what does it look like to be a, a, a God-motivated partner for the priority of God's mission on the planet. Gospel partners was a God given means of gospel progress and joy.